You're listening to Wordslinger Podcast episode 146, Winds of the Father with Bo Lamore. This episode of the Wordslinger Podcast is brought to you by draft to digital Convert your manuscript, distribute it online, and get support the whole way at drafttodigital.com. It's the Wordslinger Podcast, where story matters. Build your brand, write your book, redefine who you are. It's all about the story here. What's yours? Now, here's the guy who invented pants optional, Kevin Tomlinson, the word slinger. Word slinger. Hey, everybody, this is Kevin Tomlinson, the word slinger, and I am back. <laughs> Did you miss me? I um, I missed you. I. It's been a few weeks, I know, and uh, it, it's all because of the move. We... Um, for a couple of weeks before we moved, we uh, I had to basically focus on getting packed and getting everything ready. We relocated um, briefly with my in-laws. I stayed. We stayed with our, my in-laws for uh, the week, just you know, basically the week of the move. Um, and then at the end of that week, we uh, we went back to the apartment, and gathered everything up, and had some movers come in and moved everything over. And it was a great move. I mean, this is a great place. We're in a great place now. This is, um, so I'm in Sugarland, Texas. Moved here from Pearland, Texas. Uh, lots of lots of sugar and pears and peaches and things like that in the uh, town names in this part of Texas. I don't know why. Um, but uh, we we moved into a place, uh, it's called a flat. It's, it's, it's an apartment, but it's kind of an apartment slash townhome. Uh, if you're British, uh, these, this would just be a flat. Uh, but this is called a flat here in uh, in this location, and it's very cool. It's a, it's centrally located to all the things that uh, Kara and I love, uh, including family. Uh, we got just down the way. Uh, in fact, only about a block or so away from here are her parents, uh, which is very useful for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, not the least of which is we have someone, uh, and they love Minnie, our dog. Um, so we have someone who can watch Minnie if we ever need them. Uh, we're close to a doggy daycare too, so we're not just dumping the dog on our <laughs> on our in laws every time we want to go somewhere. Uh, but it is nice uh, to be able to uh, to give them a call and say, "Hey, you know, would you mind watching her?" Um, but it's also great that you know we're we're closer now to. Uh, uh, you know, to get together, have dinner. We like to do that a lot. We're a very close family, actually. We went to see my mom um, over this past weekend. We took her some boxes because she too is going to move. Uh, I'm actually going to start. Uh, this is what this is one of the awesome things about being an author. Because of the money coming in through my books, I can afford to do things like help out with my mom's rent, for example. We're going to upgrade her apartment. I'm going to pay the difference in her rent. Um, and, uh, you know, I think eventually I'll be able to pay her entire rent. I will get to that point. Um, but, you know, to take care of her, make sure she's okay. She's a couple of years from retirement. So I figure by the time she retires, I'll be able to just pay for her wherever she's going to live. Uh, but we were able to upgrade her her home uh, because of the book money. So um, that's very cool. Uh, we had, um, <clears throat> over the past couple of weeks, um, Joe and Kate Russo, who have been guests on this show a couple of times, from uh, the YouTube channel, We Are the Russos. Um, he's the author of Take Risks. So you you might want to check that book out if you haven't already. Um, but they were in Houston, 
And so uh, Karen and I got to have uh, lunch with them, hang out with them for a little bit. They loved Minnie too. <laughs> In fact, Kate, Kate uh, is I think Minnie's new favorite human. <laughs> so, which is kind of awesome. Um, but definitely go go check out uh, their YouTube channel. Check out uh, Joe's book. Um, they're incredible people. Uh, I was very blessed to uh, be able to spend an afternoon with them. Um, so that's been great. Now <clears throat> we. Um, in other personal news, I mean, we got uh, a lot of things happening here uh, on the podcast front. There's going to be some, some, uh, I think, some changes to the way I, I structure and handle things. I'm, I'm, I'm actually very pleased with how things are going. You know, I know, I know there some of the changes I've promised are a little slow in coming, but they are coming, and that's what's been really cool. So, hope you, uh, hope you're getting a lot out of that. So anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to hold us back too long. I do have some industry news I'll share with you after the interview. Uh, we're talking today with Bo Lamore. Now you may remember, I actually had a conversation with, uh, Bo's sister, Angelique, um, way back. I don't remember the exact episode actually, but, uh, got a chance to talk to her and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about her father and about, uh, his work. Of course, that being, um, you know, author Louis Lamore, who is famous for his westerns, but who, as it turns out, um, wrote uh, a whole lot of other stuff, including some fantasy. Um, but he was, you know, he, he he's a name, a legend I grew up with because of my grandfather. My grandfather was an avid reader of Louis Lamore books and Zane Gray and that sort of thing. Loved Louis Lamore. That was his favorite author. When he passed, I inherited all of those books. I ended up donating those to the school where I taught uh, for a time because we had no library in that school. Um, long story, but the the idea was it was an alternative campus. Uh, the kids were there because they were being punished. And I suppose one of the punishments was you don't get to learn anything or experience anything good. So I, uh, <laughs> I created a library there and um, donated a bunch of my grandfather's uh, westerns to that library. So... Um, and I think they're appreciated. I think they're in a good place. Now, um, all that said, <clears throat> now I'm uh, I'm real thrilled with this interview with Bo Lamar. He's got a uh, he, he he he's continuing his father's legacy and his father's work, which I just I find fascinating. We do hit on that a little. Uh, we're talking mostly about uh, Bo's uh, released Louis Lamar's Lost Treasures Volume One, uh, which I had by sheer coincidence I had picked up at uh, Barnes and Noble. Like, you know, about a week prior to to Bo actually reaching out to me. So I'm very, uh, very excited about this interview. I hope you are, too. And uh, go ahead and give this a listen. Afterwards, stick around. We're going to have some industry news I think you'll find cool. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll do all the whole wrap-up and everything. So take care of yourselves in the meantime. Enjoy this interview with Bo Lamore, and I'll see you on the other side. Hey, everybody. Uh, now... Some time ago, uh, I actually talked to a uh, the the daughter of a legend. We'll say I talked to the daughter of uh, Louis Lamar, and today I'm actually talking to the son of Louis Lamar, uh, Louis Lamar. And I, I I'm sorry I messed that up right off the bat, uh, Bo. But I'm talking to Bo Lamar, who is in fact uh, the son of Louis Lamar, but he's also the author of Louis Lamar's Lost Treasures, Volume One. Uh, that's, it sounds like you guys just, uh, decided you're just a bunch of writers. You just, uh, grew up in a writing household. Is that about right? <laughs> it's kind of true. I mean, I, d I did a lot of things before I got here and I don't, it's funny. I don't even really identify myself as a writer. I've been a screenwriter. I've done 
audio plays. I've done yeah. books and things like that. But uh, a long time ago, when I first started working in the movie business, um, I asked a producer that I was working for, what, what does a movie producer do? Yeah. And he said, whatever it takes. <laughs> and I feel like that's exactly like what I do in the publishing business. And so yeah. if it takes writing, if it takes doing this, if it takes doing that, that's, that's what I do. You know, I worked in film and TV for a while and that, that's definitely mm -hmm. the, uh, that's kind of how you have to be. You actually have yeah. to be able to sure. do all the jobs. <laughs> what was the transition then for you from, uh, I mean, obviously writing is a big part of your, your life, whether you want it to be or not, uh, considering your background, but I mean, what, what was sort of the drive behind, uh, the lost treasures? Um, we have got, you know, throughout the years after my dad passed away, I found more and more material of his to publish. Um, a good deal of it were things that I either finished or perfected. We published a lot of that material back in the 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah. And I had been holding the Lost Treasures concept out for uh, when the day came that we had to pull a rabbit out of the hat, you know. Right. And uh, we needed a, a big something to, uh, you know, continue continue to gather uh, uh, attention and remind the fans that we were still here. Um, and the Lost Treasures concept, which I should probably explain before I go on, I think that's probably <laughs> sure. Yeah, and it's probably the best idea. So Louis Moore's Lost Treasures is, um, and it's not just this one book; um, it's a whole program but it's my father's professional biography. Okay. And um, it's the story of his work and it's the story behind the stories. So Lost Treasures is a program or a series of new books. So Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures Volume 1, Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures Volume 2, uh, another a novel that I'll explain about in a minute. But it's also uh, a, a number of postscripts that will be added to the old books oh. that will tell the story behind the story of all those old novels and short stories and things like that. So there's, there's new books, there's reissues of old books that have added material. It's kind of like the bonus features in a, in a DVD. Okay. And, um, and so lost treasures one and two are unfinished or unsold. So this is lost treasures volumes one and volume two are unfinished or unsold materials that uh, were things that we had found and we just didn't really know how to present them to the public. They were, I have some rules about uh, what I will finish of my father's. Unlike my dad wrote a lot of stuff and uh, I didn't really feel like it was a good idea to go creating new Louis L'Amour stories or even finishing Louis L'Amour stories where dad didn't know the end himself. Right. So my, my, one of my rules is, is I don't finish anything that where I don't understand the trajectory of the story. Yeah. And, um, and so these were things, uh, there are a couple of exceptions in there that I might go ahead and work on, but these are the things where uh, the entire trajectory was unclear, um, but they were really, really fascinating. Um, 
the when you've got a powerhouse writer like my dad, right? The material that that writer cannot finish is the most ambitious stuff he ever dreamed of. And so it's the most interesting, it's the most revealing. It, right. In some ways, it's the most exciting ideas he ever had. They were ideas that were too exciting, almost. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the entire program is an attempt to just show what was going on in his life, what was going on with the stories, to show how stories that were unfinished might be finished, to show how uh, the interesting material behind uh, many very, very well-known uh, novels, um, you know, what that is, and to tell those stories as well as possible. Yeah, I'm, okay, just, no, just going by my own work, um, I, I have hundreds, maybe thousands of unfinished manuscripts <laughs> sitting around. I can only imagine <laughs> what your dad had. Oh, just no. there. <laughs> the whole story yeah. starters thing. <laughs> you could probably make a fortune, just sort of a finish your own Louis Lamour book. Uh, yeah. Just put that out there. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, he also, on top of the situation that you're describing, where any author will have a lot of unfinished things. Yeah felt that getting down the first couple of chapters was his way of sort of taking notes on what that story would be. So when he had a story idea, he tended to write the first couple of chapters um, just as a way of cementing where the story would go before he put it away and continued on with what he was doing. So it yeah. was his typical way of taking notes. That's interesting. That's an interesting way, to, and I, I, I can kind of get behind that idea. That's sort, sort of what I do. I mean, I, I just start writing the freaking book. It's really yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he did too. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you, so you've got all these lost treasures. Um, yeah. Is it? Are you? But you're saying some of the the ones that you're publishing, you were, you went ahead and finished, or are you actually publishing the unfinished books? No, the, the Lost Treasures Volumes 1 and 2, these two new books, okay, are, are mostly unfinished. There are, there are a couple of finished short stories, and there's a number of finished um, movie or book treatments in okay. there. But there's also a, a, a larger number of fragments of novels and short stories. And so I don't, I don't finish them, but yeah. at the end of the... At the end of the fragment, I'll do a commentary where I basically say, you know, this is most likely what he was doing at the time. Right. This right. is what he was trying to do with his career. This is what he was trying to do with his story. And for, for this material, I, uh, for the stuff that went in these books, I tried to pick things where there was also a fair amount of notes or outlines or things like this. And so I present the notes and outlines. I say, so here's, you know, here's some notes that show that he was thinking in this particular way. Mm -hmm. And here's, uh, here's an outline that shows that he attacked the story this way, but then he wrote these first several chapters and he wrote it that way. And you can see him experimenting with different forms and with different ideas. Um, a really good example. So I'm going to switch to now in the, the Lost Treasures material that's going into the postscripts okay. to all of the already published novels, the sort of bonus features that are going into books that have been out for quite a while. Um, there are all kinds of different stories. You know, in one, it's about Louis 
doing a lot of on the ground research, basically driving around the Mojave Desert looking for locations for the story because I had a lot of information about that story, about doing that on that story. But a really good example of the uh, of what you can see happening in Lost Treasures is um, he wrote a story called Down the Long Hills about a couple of children abandoned on the plains in the 1870s, okay. young, young children. And although the story didn't follow this particular note, one of the notes he made for himself early on was that the uh, he basically said he basically says what I just said that it's it, this story will be a story about these children who survived this wagon train massacre and have to make their way to safety and the adventures they have in the wilderness and then fascinatingly he wrote and a crowded western town okay mm. and so although the novel um, they they are discovered in the novel they are discovered by their father before they ever get to civilization. But his idea was that, uh, his original idea was that maybe their adventures in civilization would be equally as demanding as their adventures in the wilderness. Yeah. And, and just that one little phrase, and in a crowded Western town, could change that story completely. Right. And so, uh, one of the things that I do in the Lost Treasures material, whether it's in volumes one and volume two or in the bonus material that's in the back of the novels, is explore things like that that he laid out and say, right. well, so where could that have taken us? What, you know, what, what other story could possibly have been told here? That's, um, that's fascinating. It's almost like it's, it's like all the alternate history books uh, in a way. Yeah. Absolutely. That's um okay. Well, I I told you uh, before we started uh, recording. Actually, uh, the coincidentally, when you reached out to me, I was looking at this right. very book in Barnes and Noble. Now I need to make sure I pick it up and uh, and read it. <laughs> I have such a, a stack of to read uh, right now. So <laughs> that's the only reason it didn't make it right away. But now I need to rush out and uh, read it because this this is the kind of thing is very fascinating to me because I actually. Um, in my books, I, I have what I call my stuff at the end of the book, which is kind of the behind the scenes. Like, here's oh, what cool. I was thinking. Very yeah. Good. So it's a, it's a, I'm going to completely steal this what you're doing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of already do it, but I'm going to steal what you're doing because it sounds like a, a fascinating look at his work. So you're drawing from what old journals and that sort of thing, or how? What's yes. where's the source material come from? Yeah. So journals, correspondence, my own okay. memories. Um, my knowledge of how he worked and mm -hmm. um and a lot of notes made on those particular stories right and, um and so you know it's it's also very important to recognize that my dad worked uh his process was very much like uh a improv comedian yeah um, he put himself sort of in the flow of the story and he didn't know what was going to happen and right. he just wrote his way out and so a lot of the excitement that you experience in a louis lamore story um was about the immediacy of it i mean right. he experienced the story uh just a, a moment or two before you do 
Yeah. As, you know, as the re as the reader, you are discovering it almost exactly at the same pace that he is discovering it at. Not everybody can write that way. I certainly can't. Right. Uh, but it is a it, it it is a very interesting and really really dynamic way of producing fiction. Right. And so uh, you know, there's a uh, I have a I have a certain insight into what he was doing and how he was doing it, and I try and tell the most the best and the most complete story about whatever story I'm describing. Yeah. So uh, was he more? I always have to have this conversation with every author. Was he more of a plotter or a pantser? <laughs> so explain what those are. Uh, so did he plot more? Did he outline uh, everything, or did he fly by the seat of, of his pants more often and write? Right. Just he, flew by the, he flew by the seat of his pants almost all the time. That's um, but uh, he did he did create outlines. He did start stories. He did make little notes to himself that, uh, you know, I think only a member of the family would know what story they related to. Right. Right. Um, which has been one of the great situations with this with this particular with this particular book is that we you know i've got i not only not i not only have my own uh, my own memories i have my mom and my sister to help right, me out right. for that yeah. but uh a lot of the, you know because louis morris lost treasures volume one is full of material that is unfinished and was very ambitious for him that tended to be the kind of thing that he would do more of an outline or a treatment on. I mean, one of the most, uh, one of the wildest stories in there is a, uh, a kind of a big sprawling epic that he wanted to write about people who had been reincarnated. Oh. So a lot of this material is not Western. Right. It's all, it's all other genres and there's a few Westerns. Um, but he had this big kind of sprawling kind of, uh, reincarnation story and he started it the first time he started it one of the characters is a a soldier with Alexander the Great okay and then he started it and it's some kind of a primitive tribesman and you don't know if this is very ancient Europe or North America or something like this it's almost sort of a fantasy environment yeah and then the third time he started the story um, he used his own life. He used some very intimate details of his own childhood and, um, and then his young adulthood. And, and so, and he, and then on top of that, he also in trying to make this concept work, he also experimented with doing, with writing a TV series Bible yeah. for the, for the concept. So all four of those things are, are in there. And I kind of explained the differences and what he was working on and how it might have been better, you know, how he might have uh, succeeded one one way or the other. Right. Um, and uh, so it's... And you're, and you're putting these notes, you're putting this material in, in this book as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's this is this is definitely a co-author thing. He writes yeah. his thing, then I write my thing about what he was doing. And I try and solve the mystery of what was going on and why he didn't finish it. I mean, every one of these even the ones about the finished novels, even the bonus feature ones about the finished novels um, are, uh, are quite a detective story. <laughs> yeah. sort of trying, yeah. trying to find out what exactly was happening.
Yeah, it sounds uh, honestly, it sounds like this is a this is one of those every writer should read this book <laughs> and the and the one that follows it <laughs> because yeah, you can just have it, a very rare insight. Yeah, it is. It's not you know it's not a book. It's not there's no how to um, right in it about about writing but it definitely is uh, the inside of the process of a guy who was doing it and yeah. the inside of the industry, you know, yes. the industry at the time. And a tremendous amount of the story is about the post world war II evolution into paperback originals. Oh. And how my, how my dad basically kind of saved his own life at the last moment. I mean, one of the, one of the stories, uh, hiding behind this entire series or that exists behind this entire series is the fact that he was, when he finally transitioned into writing paperbacks, he was so broke that he yeah. was going to the park in the morning. So his landlady would not know he didn't have enough money for breakfast. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I can see that. <laughs> he was basically, almost on the street again you know yeah, yeah. He'd, been a, he'd been a kid that had grown up on the street in a lot of ways and he was almost back there and i think it was um uh i think it was very very challenging and see so that's what's interesting to me about about all of that um well for one like people uh, either they don't remember or they never knew in the first place that he did things like write for television or uh or did other uh, things other than Westerns really um, that I love that sort of inside look. And, and there, I think there are actually some parallels right now with the tr sort of traditional uh, publishing industry versus the, the indie author explosion and ebook explosion. So, you know, oh, I think there's something to learn there. <laughs> totally. totally. There is um, the parallel between um, the, you know, indie ebook business and the current mainstream publishing business is exactly what went on with yeah. the paperback business and the traditional publishing business in the 1950s. That's, there, that's incredible. Like no difference right down to the point where the major publishers kind of look out at the rest of the population of the country and say, well, all those people don't read. Yeah. And, and the, the paperback business and the ebook business both said, yeah, they do read, but it's price sensitive. Right. And, you know, you have to give them something so they don't, it's inexpensive enough so they don't feel like they're taking a risk. That's, that's, yeah. This is such a familiar sounding conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, and the difference between one point of view and the other is right. millions of sales. Right. You yes. Know, all you have to do is open your mind to this new, uh, this new format and you sell millions of books. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's remarkable. You know, I, there's a question I have to ask, and I I, I kind of feel like I probably know the answer, but I <laughs> wonder <laughs> uh, if your father were starting today or, or starting in proximity today. Right. Do you think that he would still go the a similar route? Like, would he be traditional, or would he be? Do you think he'd lean toward possibly being an independent author? Well, it depends on where you caught him in his career. Yeah. I think, uh, towards the end of his career, he definitely, he saw the frontier, the place that he hadn't broken into. Yeah. Being the 
the high regard of the traditional publishing infrastructure, critics, publishers, things like that. Yeah. And so we definitely wanted to break down those barriers. But up until the early 1970s, so the, you know, the first two thirds of his career, um, he was very excited by the possibilities that the paperback business offered. And I think that part of his mentality would be absolutely fascinated with what's possible in ebooks. Yeah, yeah. He, he seemed he, like he had the right pioneering spirit. <laughs> well, he was a massive self-promoter too. Yeah. So he wasn't, wasn't scared by that, um, you know, by that kind of thing. I mean, he, he, when he was younger, you know, he would go out in his shoes with holes in them and trudge around Oklahoma City and promote boxers. And, <laughs> but, uh, That's cool. he, you know, he was, he was definitely a guy that wasn't, that wasn't afraid to pitch himself and to find new ways to sell. What All right. Had. So, I'm going to be in Oklahoma city, uh, tomorrow. Uh, -huh. uh, so you should give me some, some places, some, uh, highlight areas I should hit up while I'm there. <laughs> oh, I don't know. See, see Bricktown. Uh, I would definitely see Bricktown. Yeah. yeah see, see Bricktown. But, uh, um, I don't know. It's been a while since I've been to, uh, been a I'm, while. Just look, I'm looking for some places where Louis Lamar maybe hung out and did some writing. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, all around downtown, certainly the 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 bars and coffee shops in in yeah. Oklahoma City, and he also spent a fair amount of time. His first contact, his first sustained contact with uh, kind of intellectual people, was yeah. at the University of Oklahoma down in Norman. Oh wow! And, oh, and so he had he had run across uh, a few people other than his. Um, his older brother and sister were both pretty first class intellects. His oldest brother was the foreign desk editor for the Scripps Howard uh, mm -hmm. newspaper chain. And he was also uh, a political functionary of various sorts. He was the secretary to the governor of Oklahoma for a while. And he was, um, uh, he was secretary to the last American ambassador to nationalist China. Oh, wow. And These are little tidbits. No, no I know. Knows. I know. And, <laughs> and my dad's sister was uh, a school teacher and a high school principal. But then much more interestingly, she was the first secretary and first kind of archivist and person who kind of controlled the flow of information at the Stanford Research Institute. Hmm. And so she... I mean, she was classified probably beyond our ability to exist, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure she knew all kinds of crazy, you know, crazy, crazy things. But they wow. were pretty sharp people, and they definitely challenged him when he was around them, which was not that often. Yeah. But other than a couple of, you know, kind of communist labor organizers and people like that that he would meet on the, you know, uh, on the street in the 1920s and 30s, it was the people at University of Oklahoma at Norman that, that first started really kind of pushing him intellectually. Yeah, yeah, that's really, that's that's interesting. That okay, I I don't want I'm not trying to do an interview of your father uh, vicariously here. I I, I do <laughs> want to talk to you. <laughs> well, and I want to know, I, I you know, sort of like. When it comes to the way you work, you work, um, right. how do you, first, I guess, is it similar or dissimilar from uh, the way your father worked? 
I'm much, I'm probably more organized and really? I'm probably less improvisational and less uh, fiercely motivated. So I have to play other games to kind of yeah. keep myself doing, uh, doing <laughs> what I'm doing. What, um, what are some of those games? <laughs> what, what are some of the things you have to do to keep on track? Well, the first thing I do in the day is the thing that I'm really dedicated about. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the throes of writing something that has to be writing, I try to make it exercise when I'm not. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I gotta, if I get out of bed and put my butt in the, in the chair in front of my computer and just get to work first thing in the morning, I'll do that, uh, yeah. you know, pretty well. Um, I tend, when I, if I'm working on something that's difficult, and this material has not been particularly difficult, this has been a ton of fun. But yeah. when I'm working at things that's difficult, I'll often just say to myself, you have to sit, I'm, you have to sit in front of your word processor for four hours. And okay. you can write or you can not write. Right. It's going to be really boring if you don't write. You know, <laughs> no internet, no other stuff. You know, it's basically, I like it. I like it. You're going to sit there and you're going to look at it and you know, it, you might as well write because you got to sit there. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the totalitarian approach to uh, writing discipline. Yeah. <laughs> you get bread and water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to start pushing that on people. I, you know, I, Actually, I could probably use that myself every now and then. There are those days, even though I'm, I'm pretty good about keeping to my discipline, there are those days where it's a little tough. Maybe I should adopt that rule. <laughs> well, there's another one I think is really important for writers, and it's don't be afraid to be bad. It's, yeah. re it's really, really, really important. It's sort of like don't be – um, writer's block is more an issue of confidence than, than anything else. It's not really, oh, I don't know what to write. It's I'm scared of what I might write or what I'm writing or that it's not good enough or it's not this or it's not that. That's what rewriting is for. Just freaking write. Right. When you get it down and you see what it is, you can have a dialogue with it. It's like it becomes another person and it will tell you if you're alert to what you have written. It mm -hmm. will tell you what it wants to be, but it cannot do that until you get it down. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I tell, uh, the analogy I use is, is, uh, if you're going to carve a statue from a piece of marble, you, you can't start unless you have the piece of marble. Get the words on the page and then you can edit them. Yeah. Um, that's cool. So, and, uh, you're now, what are, what are some other things you, you have going on? I mean, besides the, this, the book projects, I mean, you, you're in film and TV clearly. Um, you got anything? I, was. I, don't, I don't do, I don't do, I, I shouldn't say I don't do that anymore. I'm sure if the right thing came up, I would, uh, I would be up for it, but it is, uh, it is such a soul destroying. Yes. Business. <laughs> There's uh, a reason why so many of us say I used to work in film and television. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's also a business for people who are very taken with their image of themselves they mm -hmm. have to see themselves in that environment and uh creating their reality in film and television is just as important to them as creating the creative products yeah that they create and i got to a point where i was just sort of like you know rather than fighting all the time if I work with my dad's 
stuff, I can do all kinds of things. So, you know, I have done movies based on that. I've done audio dramas based on that. I've done a comic book based on that. I, uh, I was the editor of a, not the editor, the manager of a, a literary magazine for a while. I've had the opportunity to do all kinds of things because of the publishing connections. Yeah. Um, That's not a bad way to go. I, I'd rather do the stuff than constantly be begging people to let me do the stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the whole gatekeeper thing and that's no fun. That's no good for anybody. (laughs) Well, that's the beautiful thing also about electronic publishing now is there, there aren't even gatekeepers in the somewhat more gentle publishing industry. You you can just do your thing. You can just Right. You are, are you, uh, you, you, you said you called your father out for being a, a shameless self promoter. How about you? Do you, uh, no, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was vastly, vastly better, um, yeah. better at it than I am. And, and some of that also, you know, that comes, he ne- was never a guy who had writer's block. He had yeah. absolute confidence. Yeah. Um, I think there were a long, there were long stretches in his life when he did not. And yeah. that was that was an acquired uh, mental ability. Yeah. But um, but once he acquired it, it didn't go away. Um, one question just popped into my head, actually. So it's very popular uh, right now for um, these established authors who may may or may not still be with us, um, mm-hmm. but to to uh, for co-authors to come in mm-hmm. and sort of take take over a story, maybe finish a story that, was, that, that the author started or write something entirely new uh, with that author's universe in mind. Um, is that something you, you have considered for your father's work? Uh, like I said, given the various roles that I've laid out for myself within mm-hmm. that context, yes. So from the time my dad passed away in 1988 until about 2004, we had a new book every year. Yeah. And a great deal of the material in those new books was either uh, edited or co-written by me. I did not take credit for it um, mm. at the time because it really seemed like people wanted to see Louis L'Amour. They, it, was, it was actually very clear that they yeah. liked the idea of this just being Louis. And so I did it, uh, you know, in a kind of a ghostwriter form. And more recently, I've started putting my name on stuff because now it seems like people really care. They don't care about me, but they want to know, like, what's Louie and what isn't Louie. And I just feel like as as long as I'm being uh, as long as I'm getting that message from the marketplace, I'm going to respond to it. So the answer to that is uh, next year's book, October of uh, 18. Um, we'll have uh, No Traveler Returns, which is my dad's first novel, never published. Hmm. Uh, and it is co-written by he and I because he uh, he didn't completely finish it. And it was um, basically a pile of chapters somewhat disassociated right. from one another. Um it's uh, a very interesting, a very interesting book. It's probably not a book that I would write uh, under other circumstances, but having the opportunity to get in there and make it the best thing it could possibly be was really, really exciting. Yeah. Um, it's not, a, it's not a Western. It's a, it takes place on a, 
tanker ship um, bound from the west coast of the United States to the Philippines in the late 1930s. <laughs> and uh, it's definitely a look back at the time of his life when he was a, a merchant seaman. And yeah. uh, some of the people that he knew and concerns that he had and things like that about that, you know, that industry. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that's going to have some cachet though, because his first novel, I mean, oh, that's, I so. yeah, <laughs> it's, really different. it's remarkably different than anything else he ever wrote. Oh I, yeah. Well, it's, your first work, my first book is, is unpublished is sitting in, you know, a, a, an electronic file. Now I think I still have the original, you know, painstakingly printed manuscript floating right. around somewhere, but I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, let's hope you, let's hope you can. And let's hope it doesn't take the 80 years that it took my dad. Maybe, 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 to, to <laughs> maybe 80 years from now, somebody oh. will be sitting on a uh, phone call with uh, a, a hologram call uh, right. with uh, one of my distant uh, prodigy <laughs> talking about how they've re they've unearthed this unpublished Kevin Thompson book. <laughs> that would be cool. All right. Well, Hey, look, we're, we're at the end of time. So I, I don't want to keep you any longer, uh, uh, out of respect for you, but, uh, so this, this one, the first volume's already out. When did you say the uh, second volume was going to hit? Uh, the second volume will come out in, uh, 19, in 2019 okay. this novel will come out in between in 2018 and throughout the entire period there's already four of them out the old the older novels that have the bonus features in them um, yeah will be appearing so there's four out now there's going to be at least six next year and i i believe i've i, I believe there'll be 40 of them okay wow yeah they yeah have extra material i have to tell you uh i grew up in a household where your father's work was read constantly. Um, uh -huh. My, I grew up with my grandparents, uh, raised by my grandparents, and my grandfather always had a little more book tucked into the side of his recliner, and I read everything uh, secondhand. Uh, when he died, I inherited all those books, and then I, I actually used them to build a. Uh, I was a teacher for a time, and I, I built our our library in the school. Uh -huh. uh, those books were at the heart of that library, so I donated those. Cool when uh, I left. So you, it's made an impact. <laughs> I knew, I know you know that. <laughs> you probably put me through college. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, uh, you uh, stick around. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, everybody listening to the sound of my voice right now, uh, we're going to go into the, uh, the last half, the last portion of the show, we'll give you some uh, industry news and other, uh, other information you're going to want to stick around for, some housekeeping stuff. Uh, you may be hearing the groovy bridge music right now, and if so, you may dance in place at will. Uh, I want to thank our guest again, uh, Bo Lamar. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Thank you for having me on. All right, everybody, stick around, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. Hey, welcome to the other side of the break. <laughs> So I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Bo Lamore. I, um, I, it's funny. I, I never in a million years when growing up. Um, so Louis Lamore, you know, you, you hear certain names, uh, you experience certain things and they become kind of part of the, uh, almost the tapestry, uh, the background of your, uh, life. And Louis Lamore is one of those, uh, names. It's, it, it just, it's almost like there's not a person associated with it. There's there's just 
the legend, you know? And I, I am not, in, in and of myself, I'm not a huge Western um, reader. I've read, you know, quite a few um, and grew up, you know, with that in my, in my life part, as part of my reading experience, you know? Um, wasn't really the, the thing that captured my imagination growing up the way it did some. Um, but it was still, it was like there was this, it's, it's almost like a comfort, right? There's certain authors in your life, certain names that come up over and over again in your life. And because they're there, it's like a touch point. Uh, my own father, whom I did not meet until I was 38 years old, um, turns out <laughs> he was a, uh, he's a writer of Westerns. Uh, he's a writer. Is that unbelievable? I, yeah, it's unbelievable to me <laughs> that, that we, we had no contact with each other. Okay. Uh, no influence in one direction or the other. And we both turned out to be authors. Is that just not the coolest thing you've ever heard? <laughs> anyway, off track, but, it, but it does kind of actually tie in because, you know, there's a, there's a sort of legacy there as well. Um, and it makes you, it really does make you wonder, you know? I mean, we're even without the direct, uh, you know, personal influence. There's a, it's like there's this genetic influence <laughs> over fathers and sons uh, to be storytellers, to be, uh, to be the kind of people who would write a book, publish that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so I hope you got something out of that. Um, it does. There is something. Uh, this has come up uh, recently as well. With uh, there was a whole story that went around about uh, Stan Lee being abused by his daughter and her attorney, which turned out, uh, according to Stan, uh, is a false story. So if you're seeing that out there, it's a it's not true. He's he's he enjoys a good relationship with his daughter. There's no abuse, um, but it did make me very sad. It made a lot of people very sad to to even think of that, because you know he's he's getting on up there. I don't remember his age actually, but he's not young, and he's um. He's uh, <clears throat> there's a tendency for people to be taken advantage of. Harper Lee is another good example, um, who uh, you know, as far as it, it, from what I understand. Now, again, I'm this is, I don't want to spread false stories. I'm trying to get very good about not doing that <laughs> by by accident. Um, but I had heard that uh, she did not want Ghost Set of Watchmen to be published. That she, you know, that. Uh, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird was was her, that was the culmination of her work, um, and that th there were things happening, you know, uh, some abuses happening, uh, p being taken advantage of financially, that sort of thing, uh, throughout her elderly years. And that's um, <clears throat> it's it's something we don't think about very often, but we should. This idea that. We have a legacy. Um, we're creating intellectual property here. If something happens to us, if we pass pass away, what happens to these works that we've created? You know, what happens to our legacy in this work? Not just legacy in this work, though. You know, we have estates. We need to plan our estates. Uh, I'm I'm speaking to you as someone who has not done this very well. Okay. But what happens, you know, um, how, how do we make sure that the, not, you know, not just that the work goes on, you know, or lives on, uh, but that people we love benefit from it, you know, what, what happens there? What happens in our old age, you know, just some things to think about and uh, some things I'm definitely going to start thinking about. Um, maybe I'll bring a guest on to talk about this very subject, but, you know, uh, curating the legacy of someone who's passed on. 
was the essentially the topic of this show. <clears throat> and I, I think uh, there's a lot to learn from that. So love to hear your opinions on this, by the way. You can email me. You can go to wordslingerpodcast.com and hit the contact button. If you're following this show on YouTube, uh, you can leave comments there uh, uh, in the uh, comment section. I'd I'd love to hear some uh, some opinions on this. So. Now, <clears throat> the uh, and I'm sorry, I keep clearing my throat. I'm having one of those days. <laughs> I got some industry news that you're gonna be uh, you're gonna find interesting. I think first up, Amazon targets Kindle publishing scams, and I mean finally, seriously this. This story should have been a headline years ago. <laughs> uh, but finally, uh, Amazon is taking steps to cut down on scams and abuse from, from unscrupulous authors and their Kindle Direct Publishing Service. Uh, uh, using their Kindle Direct Publishing Service. Amazon has filed five complaints against authors who are violating the terms of service with everything from trafficking and fake reviews to link abuse, which is where an author puts a link in the front of the book that sends readers to the very back of the book in an effort to capitalize on Amazon's page reads policy uh, and the uh, page read fund. Uh, Amazon is seeking more than half a million dollars in damages from these five authors, although this is going through arbitration as part of Amazon's terms of service. Um, There is still the the matter of these uh, cases in in court. So uh, I'll be curious. It it remains to be seen whether these actions will curtail some of the uh, KDP woes that we experience as authors. Um, but I am watching this. I want to see what happens there. You can uh, you can find a link to this story in the show notes of this episode, or you can go to WPC, uh, bit.ly. You can go to bit.ly slash WPC146-Amazon-Lawsuit, and that will uh, send you to this story directly. You can find that link in the show notes if you're driving or or jogging or whatever it is you do. Um, Microsoft quietly rolls out its ebook store. Uh, now, authors leaking, you know, looking to reach a very specific and narrow group of readers can rejoice. <laughs> Microsoft has finally rolled out its ebook store, which is available exclusively to users of the Windows 10 operating system. <laughs> Um, and I'm sorry I'm laughing at this. I mean, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a new sales channel, and that's good. Um, but to make those books available only to Windows 10 users, you know, it, it's one thing for Amazon to limit ebooks to its Kindle uh, platform. It's one thing for, for Apple to limit um, iBooks to iOS devices, a prolific device used by practically everyone. Um, but, <laughs> and Amazon, by the way, makes their Kindle service, uh, makes the Kindle reader available on all platforms. Um, Barnes and Noble's Nook is available on all platforms. Kobo's uh, e-reader is available on all platforms. So, you know, you've got a whole group of uh, humans out there using iOS or Android devices who aren't going to be able to read anything that Microsoft publishes <laughs> because they they can't get that on their device. Now, uh, and, uh, someone has asked uh, Microsoft about this. Of course, Microsoft is not quite ready to comment on anything, but uh, they basically replied in the vaguest terms possible, which means no, they won't offer it, And but maybe someday if they get around to it. <laughs> you can find... I Tell me what you think of this. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that this platform is, is now out there. 
And of course, draft digital is going to work on getting this platform as one of our sales channels. They're going to have to meet some requirements. You know, Microsoft just doesn't get a pass. You know, Apple didn't get a pass. Microsoft doesn't get a pass. Uh, they have to meet certain requirements, um, in order to be included in our platform. And that includes, you know, paying the authors on time and uh, making sure there's no piracy and that sort of thing. You know, we have, in the past, we have not been able to strike up deals with certain big name uh, sales channels. You know who they are um, because they wouldn't agree to some of these terms. So, throughout the digital, uh, we're, you know, we're out to protect the author. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It, we're looking. I mean, I'm curious. Um, You can find a link to this story, of course, in the show notes. And um, you can pick it up at bit.ly slash WPC146-Microsoft. Smashwords founder Mark Coker, I bet you never thought you'd hear me say this. (laughs) Smashwords founder Mark Coker thinks indies are losing their independence, which makes just immediately brings up losing my religion in my head. I almost want to play a clip from it, <laughs> but citing an ever-increasing dependency on KDP Select, Mark Coker wrote in the Huffington Post that authors who now derive 100% of their sales from Amazon are no longer indie authors, they're dependent authors. I suppose we have indie authors and D authors now, which I think is a bit cynical, um, but it, and uh, we'll get to why I think that's cynical and why I don't agree necessarily in just a moment. But he does bring up a good point in that um, if you uh, if you're 100% dependent on Amazon, just as an example for all of your book sales, um, Amazon uh, can pull the plug on you, can change the terms, can do all kinds of things. Um, now, does that mean you're no longer indie? And I don't think so. Uh being indie means that you have control over your business. It means you have choices. That uh, it, Well, what it means is that you can choose to do whatever you want with your business. We will always have the capability of selling direct, for example. No one can stop us from doing that. Um, so if even if Amazon pulls the plug and you're no longer able to sell through Amazon, you can sell direct to your readers. You can also use aggregators to go to other channels. Those channels, even if those channels go away, you can still sell direct. So that's the point I'm trying to make here. Um, indie does not mean that you are wide. It's not by default wide distribution. Indie means that you control all the aspects of your business. You get to make all the choices and you get to use all the options that are available to you and you get to choose the ones that work best for your business model. And for some authors, that means going direct to Amazon and staying there, being exclusive. Um, now, whether or not that's a good strategy, that's that's really no one's call but your own. I personally, I don't, I don't think that long term being ex- exclusive to any sales channel is a good strategy. But short term, I think is very beneficial to authors. You know, especially if you're just starting out, you don't have a following, you don't have, um, you know, an income from the from your books. This is a way to get an income. This is a way to get a following. This is a way to build your platform. And uh, it's not the best way. It's not the only way. <laughs> but it is a way. And so I, I, I never fault authors for choosing to go direct to Amazon, to go exclusive. Um, I do counsel authors to think outside of that. You know, I have books that are exclusive to Amazon right now. You know, as I build a platform around my archaeological thrillers, all those books 
are exclusive at the moment because that's how I can I can gain momentum. And because of that, I'm getting attention from outside of Amazon. And so I'm able to, I'll be able to transition. I've got a plan, you know, I've got my plan right now and the plan, it has to be flexible, right? So you have to be able to adjust uh, to, uh, you know, changes in the ecosystem so that you can move on uh, if something does go awry. So if Amazon does change their strategy, um, I'll have to change my plan. But for now, I've got my uh, Dan Kotler thrillers are set up as exclusive to Amazon for the moment. I've got, uh, I'm working on the fifth book in that series. I'll be, uh, I'm aiming to publish 12 books in that series before I start taking books out of Amazon and going wide with them. I may adjust that. Depends on how well things go uh, before I hit that number 12. Number 12 is the, is the target number I chose. It's almost arbitrary, <laughs> but it, it seemed to me that a good series um, can of about 12 books uh, it does well in other, uh, based on the information I have at my disposal, and you know that I get information via draft digital based on that information, I have determined that a good number is 10 to 12 books in a series. Uh, when you go wide, if you're able to do that, you can launch with much more success because you can keep up a cadence and rhythm in releases over the course of a year, which makes readers very happy. Because once they discover your work, so you can put all your energy into discoverability for that first book. And then because you have more books and because you you are, of course, aren't you asking people to follow you on uh, new release notifications, asking people to get on your mailing list, asking people to follow you on social media so that they know when a new book comes out, you put CTAs for the next book in uh, each book. If you've got 12 books, you could do a book month, uh, book a month release a book a month, have CTAs in the back of each book that leads to the next, you can you can pitch pre-orders, you know, and then change the CTA to just buy the next book. You can do all these things that you can't do if you're writing a book and uh, doing this on the fly. So what Amazon and KDP Select gives me and gives you an opportunity to do is make money while you build up the catalog. Okay. So while you're thinking about, um, uh, you know, I need 12 books in order to be successful or something like that, you know, rather than have to build 12 books and not have any knowledge about whether or not anyone's even going to like the series, you can build the series, gain some momentum and earn some money at the same time and then do a big launch all, uh, all on your own on multiple platforms Put all the money that you've been earning on uh, KDP into uh, funding, um, you know, buying ads and promotions and, you know, getting your, your book bubs and anything else that you can to promote the book. And boom, man, you got a strategy, man. That's, that's, that's a path to success. Will it work? That's up to you. I mean, it, it could work. It could not work. But uh, any good plan uh, comes with the caveat that you may have to make adjustments uh, as you go. So anyway, that's one strategist strategy I'm choosing for the, um, for the Dan Kotler archaeological thrillers. Uh, and if you haven't picked those up, try them out. You can try the first one free. If you go to my website, sign up for the uh, mailing list. There's a little yellow banner at the top of my website at kevintumlinson.com. Go check that out. Uh, and uh, let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of this as a strategy. Um, I am, uh, I, you know, I've done a lot of research into this, and I think this will work. But uh, I'm open to hearing other people's ideas. So... 
pitch me. Um, anyway, that is it for this week's uh, indie publishing news. Um, I'm glad you tuned in for that. I hope you're getting a lot out of this. I, I don't get feedback on this yet, so I would love to hear. Are you getting anything good out of hearing these news items? Um, you know, are you you know what, what what are the things that are working for you with the Wordslinger podcast? And uh, even better, uh, you know, what are things that you wish you were getting out of the show that you're not yet getting? Maybe uh, maybe there's something I can think about. It's it, I'm trying to refine the process of this so that it's a quick and, and uh, simple production um, as much as possible, streamlined as much as possible, to so that I don't have to take time out of writing and other work to do it. But I, I you know I do love doing this stuff. There's a sort of weird dread that comes over me when I think when especially if I've been away from the mic for a while. <laughs> but I do love producing this stuff. Uh once I do it I'm like, "Ah, oh, why why did I wait? Why why didn't I jump on this at the uh, head of the week?" So, um but anyway, you let me know what you're thinking and uh please review the show on uh iTunes and Stitcher, iTunes in particular. Um, it helps with the discoverability of the show. Go out and uh, find the show, search for Wordslinger Podcast, leave a review, and uh, let me know what you think. Um, you know, what do you tell people what you get out of it? What's the value you're getting out of it? I'd love to hear that. So, all right, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. We're at just over an hour now, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. Uh, thank you so much for being a, uh, a listener, a supporter. Um, I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, there's some crazy stuff happening in the world right now. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get through all of this together. <laughs> we're here for each other. You are not alone. I'm right here with you, and, uh, and I appreciate you being right here with me. So God bless each and every one of you, and I will see you all next week. Slinger.